Be ready for everything and anything. Every good player has the ability to slow the game down. It doesn't matter what just happened, it's what you're gonna do next. Donut three! One, two, three, zone! This episode is brought to you by Smushball, the official training ball of Zone Sports Academy. How many times do you go to a game and there's no batting cages, no nets, and you only have a field to hit into? No problem. Smush balls are excellent because you can use them for hitting, fielding, catching, blocking, throwing, and much more. Smush balls are the perfect practice ball to use indoors or outdoors, in rain or cold conditions, against fences, nets, and even in basements. We love them for all ages and skill levels. Smush balls, the pliable ball that you can count on. Welcome to the Get Zoned In podcast for coaches looking to improve their skills and knowledge both on and off the field. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, this podcast is for you. We'll be exploring a variety of topics that are relevant and important to baseball and softball coaches, but this advice can be used for all sports and skill levels. Join us as we dive into the world of coaching and learn from some of the best in the business. Whether you're looking to improve your team's performance or just want to make a positive impact on your players, we've got you covered. Let's go and let's play ball. Hello everyone, Duke Baxter here with Steve Nickerack, and we are excited for another episode of the Get Zoned In podcast. Last week's episode, we spoke about pre-game preparation. We talked about all different aspects of it. Pre-game, pre-practice, everything you need to do to prepare yourself and your team for the game. Today we're going to dive into youth baseball questions. We're going to talk about communication, practice planning, situations. Coach Steve, what are we going to dive into today? Yeah, guys, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, you know, a topic for today is just going to be our frequently asked questions. Like Duke said, communication, practice planning, situations. We're going to jump right into question number one, and this is one that we get, we get pretty frequently, and I'll ask it to Coach Duke. How do you work on communication with your players? I think that's a great question because a lot of times as coaches, we just want to dictate to our players everything that we want them to do, and yet we need them to be able to communicate with one another. Once they're on the ball field, it's them, their teammates, and the game. So let's start out with outfielders, pop fly drills, and pop fly communication. One of the things that you can do is you can just take a tennis racket and some smush balls, or you can actually hit fungo fly balls and have the players communicate to one another who's got it. We like to say, I got it, I got it, I got it, three times loud. That's what we do with our 12U team. But every team has a different uh, cadence that they want to use, a different word that they want to use. We know that the outfielders have priority over the infielders. The middle guys have priority over the corners. And everybody pretty much has priority over the pitcher and the catcher. So we do some pop fly stuff. We also communicate on cuts and relays. The ball's hit to right field. The throw's gonna be going to second base. We wanna make sure that when the second baseman goes out for the relay, that the shortstop is moving them and kind of the, the little bit of left, 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 right, right, right. So as we're going out, we wanna line ourselves up the best we can. But as we're getting further out, we're relying now on the shortstop or second baseman to complete lining us up on a relay. Infielders should talk in between every pitch. They're communicating how many outs are there, who's on base, where's the throw, the speed of the runner. There's so many things that players can communicate on the field, but we as coaches need to give them the tools. We as coaches need to help them so that they know what to talk about. 
So many times coaches are like, yeah, our team is so quiet on defense. We don't say anything. Nobody's talking. Well, have you ever helped them and taught them what to talk about? I think that's so important when we talk about that because um, the kids don't know what to talk about, especially if they're 11 or 12 and they're on the field. Like, they don't know what to say. So I think the outs, who's on base, the speed of the runner, where the ball's going are, so, are very important when it comes to communication. And then after each of the infielders must communicate the outs and situation to the outfielders. So as infielders, we're either flashing how many outs. Out number one just happened, boom. As a shortstop, I turn around, I'm showing the number one to the left fielder. I'm showing number one to the center fielder. And we're just, we're just constantly talking and communicating the whole time. So those are some ways that, that we can use communication as a coach to help our players. So we're going to go on to the question number two. How do you incorporate pitching and catching into your one-and-a-half-hour practice plans, Coach Steve. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good one um, because, you know what, a lot of times you have two coaches. You have 12 to, to 14 or 15 guys, and, you know, you can only do so much at once. You know, I like to add it right into the throwing program, and I was just working with Montgomery Little League last weekend, and they really wanted to work on, on pitching. But for me to work with 12 kids in a short amount of time is, t- is challenging. So I had them in a straight line. We talked about the, the basics of the mechanics, so we talked about the grip. We talked about hand separation, staying balanced, staying over the back leg. But the easiest way to get everybody to throw is just to throw flat ground bullpens to one another. So we're, at, we're in our throwing program. After we do our long toss, we come back in. We stop about 15, 20 feet away from our partner. One person takes their hat off, sets it on the ground in front of them, and then that guy gets down, and he's the catcher. So we're not trying to blow up our partner and throw really fast in this situation, but it's just nice and easy. It's, it's working on our grips. It might be working on a four-seam, a two-seam, and a change-up, but we're going to throw 15, 15 pitches right at the end of our throwing program. That's one way. I think number, number two, you, know, you could shuffle down one or two pitchers at a time with a coach down in the bullpen. Right? So this might be more of a, you know, your, your guy that's going to pitch on the weekend. Maybe he's pitching on Saturday, and we want to throw a 25-pitch bullpen on Wednesday. So at practice, you know, one or two kids at a time, we're going we're gonna to send them down to the bullpen. We're going to get their work in. And then number three, which I love, is, is simulated games. So that's for the players that don't get to pitch on the weekends. The guy that doesn't get in often but really wants to try to pitch, have them throw live to hitters, you know, in the middle of the week, in the middle of practice. And, and there's so much value to that on both ends. So the pitcher gets used to throwing to a batter in the batter's box. He's throwing his bullpens. He's getting his work in. But then your hitters are able to hit off live pitching and that's that's just a an area with a lot of disconnect you know batters get nervous on the weekends they're afraid because they don't want to get hit and then on the flip side the pitchers are afraid to throw strikes or they're afraid to hit the batter so they, they have trouble throwing strikes so ton of value in that so I think adding it into the throwing program um, adding you know a little segment into practice where one or two guys at a time are going down to the bullpen and then number three would be you know simulated games so that uh, you know those guys that don't necessarily get to pitch on the weekends get to get their work in but really good question I don't know if you want to add anything yeah to that. I think that's huge because on our team you know we only play on Sundays so we're only playing six innings that's it so when you have eight eight pitchers and one game it's like okay my starting guy is going to throw two another guy might throw two and then you're trying to piecemeal okay these other two guys get one inning each just to get some guys in but at the end of the day that's still only four pitchers we still have three or four other guys that didn't get to throw at all so Coach Steve uh, hit the nail on the head when he said use 
during the week sessions to have those guys throw live so that they do stay sharp so that when you are playing two or three games a weekend or a tournament, everybody's got some time in. Try to do as many game situations and strategies and practice as you can so they're still getting that same feel of, you know, yesterday we did that in our practice. We had a five-on-five five game. We had one team on offense. They had to go on first and third and the other team on defense. And we had to, when the pitcher came set, either the third baseman or the first baseman had to break or the, the guys on first or the guys on third, the runners had to break and then put the pressure on the defense to get into a rundown, figure out whether we're going to save the run from third to home, how many outs were there, know whether they'd rather get the out going to second base to shut the inning down or worry about the guy on third. So we played the first team to five wins and we just kept going back and forth. And that was a great way to kind of put those, pre those pitchers into the pressure cooker of, of kind of like they're pitching when they really haven't had a chance to do too much. I love that too because kids want to play scrimmages. Every time, every time you get to practice, kids are always saying, can we scrimmage? Can we do this? Like that's just a fun way to end practice. So, you know, do your drill work, do your base running, you know, go through all the things you need to work on for the weekend. Then, but, but like Duke said, you play a five-on-five -five scrimmage for the last hour, those kids are locked in, they're competing, they love it, right? So that, that's just... You know, obviously a great question, but a lot of really good ways to incorporate pitching and catching into your practice plans. Third question is, how do you teach base running through the base if the opposing team is blocking up the base? My son slows down and breaks down before getting to the bag. And the, the, the question also followed up with struggling with the same problem running towards second base. I think that's, I think that's an, awesome, uh, it's an awesome question. Something that you don't see much nowadays, but you used to see it all the time. You know, you, my little league coach taught us how to drop down to that knee and kind of block them from getting to the bag. Meanwhile, you, you really can't do it. It's, it's obstruction, you know, if you do do that. So if you don't have the ball, you cannot block the base. The runner has to have a lane to go to the next base. So if, I'm, if I hit the baseball and the first baseman's in front of the base so I can't get there, well my guys are probably going to get hurt trying to go around them running full speed. So it's like you have to be have them run through the base. Set up cones behind first so your players are getting used to running through the bag. You know, if they hit a base hit and they're going to second, how they have to round it and hit that inside lane, hit that inside corner so they can go into a straight line to second base. But as a coach, what you should do the second you see either the first baseman blocking the bag or the second baseman blocking the bag, say on a steal, and the ball's like coming to him and he drops his knee down so the runner can't get there, call timeout and go talk to the umpire. Say, Blue, you know, the second baseman's dropped his knee down. My runner didn't have, didn't have a, a lane to the bag. You know, can you keep your eyes on that? So that way your kids know that, you know, that's not allowed. And if it is, hey, I, I have to be able to get to the bag somehow but you're making the umpire aware of the situation so he can keep his eye on it. Maybe the first baseman doesn't know what he's doing, so as soon as the ball's hit to the outfield, he just runs to the base anyway, and there he is standing right on the bag, and you know, your guys are constantly running into the guy. So that's another thing that you know, maybe the umpire can then take the kid to the side and say, hey, in this situation you have to you know, play off to the side a little bit and let the runners you know, go through the bag. So I don't know if it was something more malicious as – the other coach made their guys do it, or maybe the other kids just were in the wrong place and they didn't really know how to position themselves. So that's what I think. Those are some things that I think you can do as a coach to help your players, but also make the umpire aware of the situation. Yeah, and when I read that question, I, I almost thought on the, on the flip side, right, you want to give the, the player a lane to run through first base, but 
you know, coaches, it's our job to teach our first baseman how to hold the bag properly, right? If that guy doesn't have a lane, you know, not only could the, the base runner potentially get hurt, but the guy covering fir first might, you know, get stepped on, you know, stepped on the back of his ankle, you know, might go, get run into. So I think it's, it's, our, it's our job as coaches to, of course, teach base running properly, but first baseman, teaching them how to start with their heels on the bag, teaching them how to pivot correctly. Um, like Duke said, teaching your middle infielders how to cover on a steal or when, you know, the ball's coming from the outfield and we're trying to make a, you know, a tag out at either second or third base. But we've got to make sure that we're, uh, we're positioning those guys, one, where, you know, they're, they're going to make the plays. They're going to make the routine plays and get the outs. But two, they're definitely not going to get blown up by, uh, by a base runner coming flying in. You know, you mentioned slowing down and, and um, you know, breaking down before you get to the base. And I see that a lot with kids that slide. It's almost like, you know, they're running, they slow down, and then they try to slide. Um, but, you know, the, the two things that we're trying to accomplish by sliding is, one, get from point A to point B as fast as we possibly can. And two, so that we can stop on the base without flying straight through it. So, um, you know, I'm a big believer in, in teaching base running, and we, we do it a lot of fun ways um, where we'll, we'll get a sliding mat out. You know, I've seen coaches use slip and slides, but teach your players to accelerate and sprint all the way to the base, and then at the last second, we're sliding. Um, you know, one, to avoid the tag, two, so we can get there as fast as we can, and then three, so we don't go flying straight through. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we can take out of that question, but that, that was a really good one there. So this one I like. This is a little, a little sensitive, and I think people have different views on this, but so frequently asked, and that is, with two catchers on a team that also pitch, how do we handle the workload and still give them opportunities to not only catch, but to also pitch? I think... You know, that's a great question because I think we all have that, that kid on our team that, hey, both of my guys that are on my team right now currently, they both pitch and they both catch. So trying to manage that is, you know, it's pretty tough. So yeah. what do you have for that one? I've had, uh, I've had the same team since they were around 11 or 12 years old. And, um, you know, both catchers every year also pitch. And uh, I think for me, it's really just trying my best to map out the weekend. Um, you know, map out the game schedule. If we're playing two games on Saturday and then, you know, it could be, you know, win in advance on Sunday, we might be there for five or six games. So, uh, you know, when I'm trying to get my catchers into pitch, I want to make sure that I'm monitoring their throws. We talk about this every week regarding pitch counts and, you know, how many pitches guys should be throwing. So, you know, monitor those throws. Monitor how many games in a row those guys are catching, um, how many throws they're making in between games. They're down in the bullpen warming up the pitcher throwing every single ball back, you know, it, it adds up quickly. So make sure you're, you're just aware of the throws that are, that are taking place. When I talk about mapping out the weekend, it's really just mapping out the pitching rotation. So, you know, one of my catchers is kind of like our closer. You know, if I plan on using him, I'm not going to have him catch six straight innings and then go in and pitch the seventh. So I might have him catch two, put the other guy in for, for three or four innings, and then bring that catcher in the pitch. You know, I might not have him at catch at all that game. I might just have him, you know, as the, as the DH, or I might put him out in the outfield. You know, it's, it's tricky, and I think you got to really just monitor the workload, but um, it's definitely doable. You know, with two catchers, I actually have a guy now, he's, our, he's like our third catcher. He's like just a super, super utility player, but having that other guy that can catch is also great. You know, if there's somebody, they might not be the best catcher on the team, but, you know, if you're up big or down big and you want to give your guys a break, 
There's nothing wrong with throwing somebody else back there for a couple innings just to take the workload off, off, off your two catchers as, mu as much as possible, especially during a long season. Now, if you're just playing two games on the weekend, it's easy. But if you're playing tournaments and, you know, you're playing all week long or all summer long, that's where, you know, kids start to get banged up back there. They're, they're constantly squatting down. They're constantly throwing back and forth to the pitcher, you know, back picks, throwdowns on, on steals. So, um, again, monitor it. Do your best to map out the weekend. And when you plan on using those guys, you know, just be smart about it. Don't, don't leave a kid back there for catching for two games straight and then just throw them out on the mound for, for, for three innings, you know, in the championship game. I don't, have, I don't have anything to add. I think, I think you, you kind of covered everything, but I think that is the, the biggest thing for coaches. The biggest takeaway is making sure that they are monitoring the volume and the throwing of those catchers before they just throw them in there as a, as a normal starter. You know, if you, can, if you can take that guy and maybe uh, start the other catcher for the first three innings knowing that your guy is going to catch, well, that's smarter than having that catcher catch four innings and then go right into pitch. But sometimes we... You know, sometimes sometimes the game itself doesn't doesn't dictate the same thing. We need that guy, and like you said, he's your closer, and it's like, boom, he's going in there for, you know, 15, 20 pitches. Okay, fine. Yeah. But it's more that guy that, you know, catches a full, like you said, catches a doubleheader, then starts the next game, and you're like, wait a second. Like, like that's he, a lot. He's but. also just that kid that'll never say no. So if I ask him if he wants a pitch, of course he's going to say yes. He's just got that, you know, kind of blue-collar toughness about him. You know, so it's almost my job to – make sure I'm not overusing him because he will just go until he passes out. And then, you know, I get the funny, the funny pictures late at night. He's got ice bags on both knees, both shoulders. You know, catchers get beat up back there. So it's just taking care of him as, as, as much as you possibly can. Um, another great one we've got here. Do you have any downloadable hand signals for the third base coach to give to the runners? That, that's a question we get a lot. Um, you know, it's something we don't talk about a ton, but I'll, I'll bounce that one right to Duke. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're definitely going to create that and put that on our website. There's so many different things, and, and I think that the age of the team that you have will dictate what the signs are, like not making them too complicated, making them very simple for them to remember. And I think a lot of coaches are scared to make it too simple because the other team's going to know it, but nobody knows what your, your signs are no matter how simple they are, right? As long as you're not doing something weird, you know, like say you squeeze your nose on a bunt and you only squeeze your nose only when you're going to bunt. Like, you need to have signs that you do all the time, down the arm, touching your chest, your leg, your hat, um, your ears. Like, and you have to make sure that when you're over there, you're constantly doing different things so that it's not just, oh, he only touched his nose once the entire time and he happened to bunt. So I guess touching his nose is a bunt sign. So, you know, something that you can have with your players is an indicator. Like, you can use your wrist as the indicator. Let's say you tap your wrist and then the number of touches after that. So if bunt is one touch, well, I click on some different things, boom, boom, boom. I then go to my wrist, I go to my leg, and then I go back to the wrist. That means I touched one time, one time I touched my body in between touching the wrist. So that's a one touch. Two touches could be a steal. So I can hit my wrist, I can touch my leg, my shoulder, and then go back to my wrist. Well, that's two touches in between the wrist touches. So those are like, that's a simple thing. Our American Legion coach would just do claps. He would touch all different things, and if he clapped once, that was a bunt. And if he went and touched a bunch of things, and at the end he, he just clapped two times because he's always clapping, he's always yelling and always doing things. So it was just a clap system. And then three was a hit and run. He'd go through hat, arm, shoulder, one, two, three, and you knew it was a hit and run on. So that's another simple way. But 
You can also ask your players what they want this. What should the bunt sign be? And let's let them come to a, a consensus. And that's exactly what I did yesterday. Um, because last game, we had runners on first and second, and we don't have a backdoor pick. We don't have a pick to first base with runners on first and second. We haven't worked on it yet. But there was two different times where I'm like, man, if we had a back pick, we could easily get that guy out of first. So yesterday, we worked on the back pick. So we talked about coming set, 1001, 1002, the pitcher stepped back and turned and fired. And I'm like, hey, guys, what should the sign be for that? And one kid said, Lightning McQueen. And another one said, yeah, what number is Lightning McQueen? One guy said 95. So the sign is 95 or Lightning McQueen. That's the backdoor pick on first base. So all the kids are going to remember it. <laughs> all the coaches are going to remember it. And no one's going to have any clue what the heck we're talking about when we're like Lightning McQueen or the number 95 just pops out of nowhere but us. So it sounds like, oh, my gosh, that's so simple. But it's not if you're on the field and you're just hearing things being talked about for an hour and a half. Lightning McQueen is can mean nothing. So, you know, that's that's just a funny a funny thing. But I think that uh, you know, putting the onus on the kids and the accountability makes them remember it much easier than if we're touching 16 body parts and they're staring at us trying to figure out what what the heck we're doing. So we will definitely make a little downloadable though that kind of gives you some some different things that you can use in some ways to uh, to add a sign system onto your team. Yeah, I mean Duke hit the nail on the head. I was just going to talk about simplifying it. I think yep. too often coach, coaches try to get over overly complicated. And like Duke said, you know, a kid standing in the batter's box has no idea what you're doing down there. So, you know, keep it simple, especially at the youth ages. Coaches aren't really stealing signs. You know, there are guys at, at the higher levels, their job is to sit in the dugout and try to, you know, pick up on signs. So, you know, at the younger ages, keep it simple. And I can't emphasize this enough, but go over it in practice every week for the first eight weeks you know go over it every single time otherwise kids are going to forget you know they have their middle school signs they have their high school signs you know they have their rec signs and now they have their travel team signs so keep it simple go over it a ton um, you know we'll do a base running circuit at the beginning of every practice and i'll be down the third baseline going through signs i'll have three drop bases out so i've got three base runners at once and they're all looking at me. You know, and there's also nothing wrong with your player stepping out or giving you the sign like, hey, can you go over that again? I'd much rather that than the player stand down at first base saying, oh, man, I wonder what he gave me there. Did he give me the steal sign? I'm not sure. You know, sometimes they'll just, you know, move their hand for me to, just to let me know, can you give it one more time? Or ask the first base coach, you know, I missed it right there. Um, but again, simplify, go over it as much as possible. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's all I got for that. Do covered it all. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, let's just, let's ask each other a couple of questions. I have a good one just because I know, you know, you've been trying to go out and see some of your players, see some of the, the, the students that you train. And the other day you went to a, to a game, you know, what are some things that stick out to you or what are you looking for when you go, you know, go watch some of your players play? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I don't get in the stands very often. So, you know, I, I hang out with the parents a little bit, but I've also distanced myself from them because some of the comments that I hear from the parents are just, you know, outrageous. Some are bad, some are good. You know, I kind of just like to stand back and, and kind of hide and, and watch the game. But, you know, I really like seeing kids that play the game hard. And this high school season, it's refreshing to see kids play to help their team win um, because, you know, there's, there's not really recruiting going on right now. It's, you know, they're fighting for championships. They're fighting for seedings and playoffs, and they're doing whatever they can to help the team win. And a lot of the times, you know, during the summer, and not our team specifically because, you know, we try to pride ourselves on the, 
the we over me mentality. But a lot of the times during the summer, it seems like things get individualized and kids are out there for themselves. And, um, you know, they're worried about their own statistics and numbers and, and showcasing. So, you know, it's really good to see kids just out there tough and gritty and battling and, you know, diving all over the place and sprinting on and off the field. And again, do, doing whatever they possibly can to help their team win and win in advance. And, you know, we're going to a, uh, a game tomorrow at, at Somerset Patriots where, you know, one of our zone coaches is, is the head coach and there's a bunch of guys on both teams. So we're looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, those guys battle it out. But I love getting the, to, to see the, ki the kids out there and compete because, you know, we're in the facility so much and we're in the cages and on the field training. So then to, you know, see all our hard work pay off is, is probably one of the most rewarding things in the world for us. It's funny though, because I'll have kids that look like rock stars in here and then they, they go out to play and they get nervous and you know, they've got all these emotions and nerves and anxieties going on. And um, one of my players last night told me, and she, she's a great player, but you know, for whatever reason, she's nervous in the batter's box. So we spent a half hour just talking about routine and breathing and slowing down and, and trusting her ability. Um, because I think a lot of the times kids get caught up in the moment and they start to, uh, you know, stress out for, for, for no reason. And you know what I had said to her, I said, listen, you're going to be a college softball player one day. And fast forward three or four years from now, if I ever look at you and say, you know, what was your batting average your sophomore year of high school? You're never going to remember it. Right. But right now you're putting all the pressure in the world on yourself to perform and, and do well and be in the starting lineup tomorrow, you know, instead of just letting your, your, your training kind of speak for itself. You know, you've earned the right, you've worked hard all winter, you've earned the right to have some confidence in the batter's box. You know, those are just some things that stand out to me, but I love it. And you've been out to, to see your son play, you know, a lot of guys that we train, anything, anything that you've seen? Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that just stands out when, kind of like playing off the story that you just had, you know, is a lot of the, the better players or the, the kids that maybe are the leaders on their team, you know, feeling like, they have to do good. If they don't hit a double and score that run, like they're not going to win. Or if they don't pitch amazing on the mound, they're not going to win. And we both know, like, as a good athlete and as a competitor, you put enough pressure on yourself as it is to do well for yourself and do well for your team. But then all of a sudden you take that other, uh, that the monkey jumps on your back, and now you're trying to take the whole team and going, well, if I don't do well, the team's not going to win. And if I don't get a hit now, then this isn't going to happen. And now it's like twice as much pressure. And it's like the kids just, after a while, you just, it becomes too much. It's no longer just, man, I gotta, I'm worried about my at-bat. It's, well, if I don't get a hit, my team doesn't win. And then my team's going to be upset with me. Or, you know, the coach is going to be mad because I didn't get three hits and, we only win when I get three hits because if I only get one hit, we're not going to win. So I feel like I've been hearing that more this year for some reason about, you know, kids that are just have been feeling that over anxiousness of like needing to do well. And I think that, you know, the, the game is so mental and so much in between our ears. And we talk about this a lot in podcasts and with our lessons, you know, just the positive self-talk. Steve just said it perfectly about having a routine and breathing and visualizing yourself getting a hit, you know? And what if you don't get a hit? It's not the end of the world. You're going to have another game tomorrow and you're going to get three more or four more at-bats. Like just live in the moment and take on today's at-bat. Take on today's game. Don't worry about what you did yesterday and how you went 0 for 2 yesterday. And Because so many people just live in yesterday so much that they can't enjoy the fact that, hey, 
I have another at-bat today. Maybe I'm going to get up with two guys on, get a single, and I'm only one for a three, but that one hit drove in, you know, drove in a run and we did win. Or you know, just really staying in the moment and enjoying the game for the game. Um, I think that's you know, something that we're always talking with all of our players with. Because it's so easy just to talk about the ground ball or the, the miss hit or instead of just being like, hey, just go play. Hit the ball hard. Um, it's not about you don't have to hit a home run. Just, just square up the baseball. You know, uh, can you talk a little bit about yesterday when we were talking with Kevin Wilson and he was talking about how he was working with a pro guy and you know, how he miss hit a ball and all he had to do was look up to, to see the speed of the, right? Like it's almost just like, I'm just trying to square up baseballs. And if I didn't, why didn't I? And then that's it. Like the rest of the game's going to take care of itself. But I thought that was just so, and I think a lot of guys and a lot of people that watch games are wondering why when a guy gets out, they stand right up the Jumbotron. It's not to watch the replay of them striking out. They're looking for something specific. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I thought that was awesome. I thought that was funny. We were talking about hit tracks, and we were talking about um, you know different softwares that we have to track measurable numbers. So whether it's hit tracks or Rapsodo or Blast, and you know more times than not, kids want to look up there and see what their exit velo is. They want to see what their max distance is. Um, so I asked Kevin, who is you know a very very successful hitting coach. He was a hitting coach for, for Team USA. You know, he's been around for a long time and definitely somebody that, that we trust. And uh, he was working with a major leaguer and he used the hit tracks to, you know, see line drive percentage, fair, foul. But also, you know, if he miss hit a ball, he would look back and see how fast that ball was traveling when it crossed home plate. And it was funny because he, he mentioned in the game, you know, a guy might square something up his first at bat. Second at bat, he might roll it over, and as he, you know, he crosses through first base, he looks up at the at the jumbotron, and it, it says 94. That's you know the speed of the pitch. He's like, oh, well, it wasn't my fault. The guy used to th- was throwing 96, and now he's only throwing 94. So, it wasn't my fault. Swings fine, and uh, you know it's funny because those guys they have to believe in themselves. They have to, like Duke just said, the positive self-talk. Um, it wasn't his swing's fault. It wasn't his mechanics. It wasn't, you know, I got to change something up. It was, no, the guy threw the ball two miles an hour slower than the last time, and that's why it was a little bit early. But, yeah, it gets right back to what, what Duke just said. Um, you know, I just want to touch briefly on, you, you know, you talked about the positive self-talk. Um, another example I have, a high school softball player, very good player, and she's on a really good team. So they had a tough loss the other day, and they're getting ready to go play a really good team today. And I said, so you guys ready to roll tomorrow? And she's like, oh, I feel like if we won yesterday, we'd win tomorrow. And it, it reminded me so much of what Duke said a couple weeks ago about, uh, you know, parents staying off game changer and stop worrying about that time limit and the run differentials. And, you know, all that stuff's out of your control. And we were talking about how guys will just psych themselves out before the game even happens. You know, they've got a tough opponent today. And she was still worried about the loss yesterday and how the, that was going to affect her team's performance the day after, you know, and I, and I had a very similar conversation with her about, you know, if you go in there with the mindset that you don't think you can win, well, you're definitely not going to win, right? So you might as well just, you know, find a way to believe in yourself. You know, you got to have that positive self-talk. You've got to go into the game knowing that, uh, you know, you're going to put your best foot forward because if not, if you have any self-doubts, this game's going to beat you up enough as it is. Um, you, you really have no chance. But I just, I thought that was interesting. When she said that to me, I looked at her twice. I'm like, Really? If you guys would have won yesterday, you have a better chance tomorrow. It was just, it's funny. And, uh, you know, us as coaches, we can only speak on our own, you know, failures and experiences to, 
you know, we, I'm sure we've all felt that way before. Like, man, that, that loss really hurt us. You know, it's, it's going to be tough to bounce back. But, you know, we can teach from experience and teach from, you know, some of the failures that we've had throughout our career to, you know, help get them in the right headspace. Because nine times out of ten, the swing works. You know, they're, 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 they're good on defense. They can throw strikes. But if you're not right between the ears, then uh, it's absolutely going to be an uphill battle. So as we're speaking of right between our ears, next week we're going to have a mental conditioning and mental performance coach on. So we're super excited. So make sure you guys listen next week. Uh, we're excited. Thanks so much for, for listening to the show. Coach Duke, Coach Steve with the Get Zoned In podcast. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining. Dominate the day.